Good morning, Chapel Hill. It's great to welcome you. In, thank you for welcoming us into your home. It's great to have you here in our home. Uh, this morning I had a chance to speak to three different people who were here for the first time in a year. One of the guys is not much of a crier, but he was a little misty when he talked about the power of hearing his family singing and worshiping together. So we look forward to you coming back when you are able to do so. Who knows, maybe Easter will be that day. We kind of got a kick off yesterday on our Holy Week celebrations with our first ever egg dash, which was thrown for our entire community. Um, we had 50 volunteers who hid 5,300 plastic eggs with pieces of candy that had been stuffed into every single one of those eggs, and at 11 o'clock, 150 kids with their parents kind of in the distance, in tow, were just set loose to find them. Uh, all around our, our church uh, building here, Cindy and I put out a thousand eggs. It took us about an hour to do that. And then I watched this horde of children descend upon us like a plague of locusts. <laughs> and in two minutes, oh, all thousand eggs were gone. They had stripped the earth bare. It was awesome. It was awesome. My favorite moment was afterwards sitting out there on the pavement when uh, the kids would come back and they would undo all of their eggs and save the candy and recycle the, the plastic eggs for next year. So I was sitting on the pavement helping them with their eggs and talking to them. One little girl, she's probably five years old, her name was Lily. And as she opened up her eggs and put her candy away, she told me the whole gospel story from Christmas right through Easter. And I'm telling you, I just kept saying, tell me more about that. And she would tell me more. Her eyes were so intense and there was such a, a, a look of joy and purpose on her little face, at least the half of it that I could see. It was, it was the high point of my day. So that's what your church is doing and trying to reach the community for the gospel. Uh, one of the many things, and I want to thank our children's ministry team for all of the great work they did to, to make that happen. It was a great gift to our community. It was a great gift to their senior pastor as well. What a fun way to kick off Holy Week, the week we call Holy. My birthplace was a town called Martinez, California. Uh, Joe DiMaggio was born there as well, so I have that... To, that's the distinction of that for me. And I remember well the road trips that we used to take from Yakima, where I lived, down to Martinez to visit my grandparents who were still there. And one of the high points of those trips was that my grandpa Bert would go to our the neighbors and he would get the Shetland pony that they owned called Shorty so that we could have rides on Shorty. They could have renamed that horse Snotty, frankly, because he was not a very nice pony. But it was still pretty cool to, for a couple of kids. He was just the right size for these two kids to be sitting on top of him. And we felt pretty darn noble sitting up there. But how does an adult look sitting on a pony like that? Not as noble, right? And if you wanted to make a gallant entry into a town, you'd want to come in on a war horse, right? Not the colt of a donkey. At least you wouldn't think so. I mean, it's not very awe-inspiring trotting in on a, on a little pony. Until you read the story that I'm going to share with you this morning, the story that we call Palm Sunday, about the entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. So listen to this from Luke chapter 19. 
Then Jesus went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And his disciples untied a colt and brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I lived in St. Andrews, Scotland for a couple of years, as many of you know, and nearby is the capital city of Edinburgh. And in the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, there stands a, a, a beautiful statue to Alexander the Great and his beloved and famous war horse, Bucephalus. Bucephalus. Bucephalus was a huge horse with black coat, a massive head. That's what Bucephalus means. It means ox head. And famously, he had one blue eye. And no one but Alexander could ride Bucephalus. And they were said to have struck terror in the hearts of every one of their enemies that encountered them. Now, Bucephalus was the sort of steed that a king needs if he's going to make a triumphant entry into a city. Not this. This doesn't command respect. This doesn't inspire awe, does it? I've seen a lot of men on, on donkeys like this in my trips to the Holy Land. Um, and, but that's what, that's what they saw that day. On Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this colt, there were masses of his followers who were gathered around him and they were shouting praise. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Other Gospels tell us more details, like that they laid palm branches in front of their path, which was an honor ordinarily reserved for a conquering king. Like I said, I've been to Israel, I've seen men walking, riding these donkeys around, but I've never felt very inspired to remove my jacket and lay it down on the ground in front of them. And yet that's exactly what was happening. So what's the deal with this story? Well, the deal is... A guy named Zechariah, a prophet who wrote 500 years before Jesus came to earth. And he made predictions about the coming of the Messiah, a bunch of them. In fact, one of them is in chapter 9, verse 9. He said, Zechariah wrote this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Every Jewish child would have been taught this prophecy in their Sabbath classes. And you couple that with the amazing miracles that Jesus had been performing, and the incredible way that Jesus taught, and suddenly it all began to make sense. For three years, the people who had been following Jesus around kept saying, do you, wonder, do you think he could be the one? They were whispering and, and pointing and, and wondering, is he the Messiah? If he's not the Messiah, who could do the things that he's doing except the Messiah? The problem is, every time someone said that, what did Jesus say? Shh. 
Every time they tried to call that out, Jesus would say, shh, not yet. Don't tell anyone. Keep it to yourself. Jesus would heal a guy who had been paralyzed for all of his life, and he would jump up from his mat and want to shout it to the world, and Jesus would say, shh, don't tell anyone. Not yet. Jesus gives sight back to a man who had been blind since birth, and Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone. Not yet. Jesus heals a leper, restores his rotten flesh, restores him to society again. He wants to scream it from the mountaintop, and Jesus says, shh, not yet. For three years, all that Jesus said in response to that was, shh, not yet. But then Jesus came riding down Mount of Olives on a donkey, a clear messianic declaration. And this time, it wasn't Jesus who was saying, shh. Stop talking. Listen to the next part of the story. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, you see, it's the religious leaders who are trying to get the people that follow Jesus to shut their mouths. He says, they say, teacher, you tell them to stop saying this stuff. They're declaring that you are the Messiah, the, 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 the king who has been sent from God. Shush them up. This is blasphemy. And this time, for the first time in his ministry, Jesus doesn't say, shh. He says, good luck. Good luck. You want to shut up these people? You want to stop their praise of me? You give it your best shot. But even if you manage to quiet these crowds, it will not make any difference because these very stones all around you will cry out in praise. I've read that phrase so many times before that, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of times. It suddenly struck me what it might have meant. On the western flank of the Mount of Olives is one of the most exclusive pieces of real estate in all of Judaism. And it's a cemetery. A cemetery. For centuries, this has been the prized place for a Jew to be buried. Why is that? Because they believe that when the Messiah returns, that he will come to the Mount of Olives. And the first people who will be raised from death to life will be the people who are buried right there on the Mount of Olives. And so scattered across that flank of the, of the Mount of Olives, you will see thousands and thousands of tombs, ancient, ancient tombs. And sitting on top of most of them, you'll see stones. Memory stones, they are called. They have been placed there as a tribute to their departed loved one. The road down the Mount of Olives goes right next to that cemetery. It does today because I've been down it about 10 times. And it did back at the time of Jesus. And as I was studying that passage this week, it suddenly struck me. I wonder if these were the stones that Jesus was talking about. Would these stones that had been left as silent tribute suddenly cry out in praise at the appearance of the Lord of the living? Stones of death shouting praise to the creator of life. Was that what Jesus meant when he said, if you keep them quiet, these very stones will cry out my praise? I wonder if you realize what's happening in this moment. For the first time in Jesus' earthly life, 
Jesus, the subversive leader, Jesus, the one who quietly transformed the lives of everyone he touched, was done being quiet. This wasn't subversive. This wasn't covert. This was overt. This was Jesus in your face. And if you think that was in your face, wait until you, what, you read what happened next. Jesus made his way down to the bottom of the Mount of Olives through what is called the Garden of Gethsemane. He made his way through the Kidron Valley, back up the other side, and right into the door that led into the temple square. And this is what happened next. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. You never saw Jesus this mad. He was always cool, always collected, always controlled. But when Jesus made his way into that temple square and he saw how people were being taken advantage of, how they were being ripped off by the money changers, how they were being extorted by the religious shysters, he blew up. And you turn to the other Gospels and you get some more of the juicy tidbits of the story. John tells us that he took a rope and he made it into a whip and was chasing these guys around the temple. Matthew tells us that he flipped over the tables, he flipped over the chairs, and he was chasing those merchants out. How many of you remember a basketball player by the name of Dikembe Mutombo? Anybody? He was one of the greatest defensive players of all time in professional basketball. And he was most famous for his blocked shots. And after he stuffed someone, he would wag his finger and say, No, 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 not in my house. Mutumbu didn't invent that move. Jesus did. When Jesus stuffed those money changes in the temple, he said, My house, my house, my house is a house of prayer, and you shall not behave this way in it. No, 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 not in my house. We thought his donkey ride down the hill was gutsy. That was nothing compared to what Jesus did in that temple. And if that wasn't gutsy enough, we are told that every day after that moment, day by day, he, after turning over tables and pouring out the money and scattering all the pigeons and chasing those guys around with a whip, Jesus came right back to that very spot and planted himself there and preached to the people who hung on his every word while those religious leaders stood by helpless and seething in rage. Would you agree that subversive Jesus has left the house? That defiant Jesus is now on the scene? This is no more gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is in your face, Jesus. This is not in my house, Jesus. This is not a Jesus to be trifled with. This is a brave, courageous, frightening, awesome Jesus who was ready to take on the forces of evil, who were crushing the spirits and the hope of his people. And what I want you to see this day is this. When Jesus went ballistic, who was always on the receiving end of his anger? 
it was always the religious people. Always. Jesus always reserved his hottest anger, his sharpest words, his frightening finger wags for the grouchy religious people. When an adulterous woman was dragged in front of Jesus by her accusers who were intent on her blood, all she received from Jesus was mercy and grace. When an when a, when a tax collector named Zacchaeus dared to try to draw near to Jesus, what he received from him was mercy and grace. When an unclean woman dared to reach out and touch the hem of his garment that she might receive her healing, what she received from him was mercy and grace. When a pagan Roman centurion appealed to Jesus to heal his beloved servant, what he received from Jesus was mercy and grace. The irreligious losers, the cheaters, the adulterers, the whores, the tax collectors, the pagans, the drunkards, the lepers, every no good, no account, nobody who by all rights should have been scorned by this famous rabbi. Instead, what they received from him was mercy and grace and compassion and welcome. But it was the grouchy religious people the self-righteous, who felt their control slipping, who sensed the religious world shifting beneath their feet, they were the ones who met, not in my face, Jesus. In, in, not in my house, Jesus. In your, in your face, Jesus. He said, you want to shut up my people? Good luck. A million stones will rise up and pray, sing my praises. You want to prevent my people from worshiping my Father or gouge them for the privilege in my house? No way. I, I believe that we need to pay close attention to this. It was not the Romans, not the politicians, not the scurrilous characters, not the immoral players that got Jesus hot. It was grouchy religious folks. The ones who thought they had a corner on the God market. The ones who thought they had it figured out and were not willing to change. The ones who did not care about outsiders, who didn't care about unbelievers, who didn't care about the sinful and the shameful and the disgraceful and the despicable, but cared only for their comfort, their control, and their familiar traditions. They were the ones who evoked the wrath of Jesus. Now I want to say this. I don't think this is Chapel Hill's heart. I have a nickname for you. You know what it is. My Sweetheart Church. And one of the reasons I have called you My Sweetheart Church is that for decades I have watched as you have tried to be both spiritually faithful without being spiritually grouchy. You are a welcoming church. You are a church that wants to move beyond our walls and Put your money where your mouth is. You are a church that wants to be for our city. You are a church that is willing to try new things, willing to set aside personal preferences for the sake of the outsider, for the, the sake of the not yetter. But COVID upset our apple cart, as it did every church. This was a time when much has been flipped over, much has been poured out, much has been chased off and shaken up. COVID stole many of our precious traditions and our precious practices. Something that kind of left us feeling like we were in strange new territory. 
I mean, the first time in my life that I did not have people in church on, on an Easter Sunday morning last year. So I know that we have felt uns- you know, unsettled, but now we are beginning to return. Now we are beginning to be restored. Now we are reclaiming some of those lost, precious things. And it is a perfect time for us to be reminded that this is still Jesus' house and not ours. That he still cares about the outsider as much as he loves the insider. And that his greatest irritation was always reserved for those who built walls to keep dangerous, bad people out and religious people safe. We can and we must continue to learn to be both faithful and sweet at the same time. And this week that we call Holy Week, this week when we're going to invite outsiders to come and join us, invite newcomers to come and take a peek. We're going to make room by moving one direction or another so that we open up some space in the 10 o'clock hour. This is a perfect week for us to practice what we say we believe. And I would love to help you in that journey. This, this Good Friday, I'm going to lead us on what I'm calling a, a pray through the day. Starting at 6 in the morning on our FaceTube and YouTube channels. 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock. I'm going to be online and I would love to join, have you join me in that. And we're going to reflect together upon what Jesus did that day. The death of Jesus on the cross. And we're going to be reminded that Jesus died on the cross for the sake of the shameful, the disgraceful, the despicable, the irreligious. Perhaps that's where you would put yourself today. Or perhaps you remember the time when you would have said, that is the description of me. And it's good news for us because God still loves such folks and for them Jesus died. But I have some more good news for us. Jesus also loved and died for the rule-keeping, grouchy traditionalist. For the religious insider like me, who identifies sometimes more with the elder brother in the prodigal son story than anyone else. This is good news for me. A good reminder to me. And maybe it's a good reminder to you as well. Jesus, thank you that you came to us when we were broken, despicable, outside of your grace and love. You came to us in those states. You welcomed us. You healed us. You forgave us. You restored us. We didn't come worthily. We came unworthily and you made us what you wanted us to be by your mercy, by your death on the cross. And so for that, we thank you. We will always thank you for that, Lord, but I pray that we never forget that state in which we were once. And especially this season, Lord, when people begin to take our parking places and take our seats in the pew and, and cause us to have to, to go to a different service or to be inconvenienced in some other way, God, forgive us for that instinct the possessiveness, the grouchiness that can begin to creep in. Save us from that. Spare us from that. Remind us that you don't like that attitude. And instead, give us hearts that are merciful and compassionate and hospitable and kind to welcome those who have not yet discovered the life that we have discovered through your death on that cross and your salvation in resurrection. 
So, Lord, that's what we ask for. Make us, continue to make us to be a sweetheart church that is seeking to live faithful, spiritually, but sweetly. And we ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.